You are now listening to Me and the Market Goliath podcast. Welcome to Me and the Market Goliath podcast. Today I have a very special guest and a friend of mine who works at a private equity firm. He's also a certified public accountant. He currently works at a venture capital, so he knows how to value a company from a financial standpoint. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome Jonathan Kong. Thanks, Calvin. So Jonathan, I think a lot of our listeners would like to know about your background and what you do and how you see the current market conditions. So tell us more. Sure. Um, actually, I had a different route uh, to enter the uh, private equity uh, career as different people. I started off my career in audit where I was working in one of the uh, CPA firm and uh, I got my CPA license from there. And after my audit career, I worked in the uh, advisory sector where I advised uh, my clients into how to make their uh, private investments into private equities. And after that, I have been uh, moving into a family office where I helped them to do the uh, private uh, investments into the venture capital and private equity areas. Great. I think your experience is very robust. So how does being an accountant help you become an investor? An accountant looks more into the key fundamental of the companies. So the difference between an accountant and the usual private equity or investment banker background uh, investors is that we look more into the uh, financials and also the valuations uh, of the companies, where, while the investment bankers would look a lot more into the uh, commercial aspect of the uh, of the different companies. So, would you say you're a fundamental investor? Um, you know, as a retail investor, looking into like the account balance sheets and income statement would help you get a better idea of how much the company is worth in two to three years. Sure. I actually look in more of the all-round status of the company, where uh, different to a lot of public market investors, where they look a lot on the uh, market sentiments, I will focus more on the uh, the financials, uh, the valuations, I look into the management, uh, the products of the uh, companies that they're selling, the industry that the, the investments are in, who are their major competitors in the industry, their market shares, for example, the future outlooks of these kind of companies, their business plans as well, uh, what they're trying to develop into. I also look into, for example, the geography of uh, where these uh, companies are from, etc. So I look into more of these uh, different aspects before I would make my decision in whether I should invest in this company or not. I want to know more about like how private equity make investments. Like, what kind of metrics do you sort of look at? You know, when it comes to evaluating a company's worth, right? Because from my understanding of of startups, they don't make any profit in the first two to two three years at least. So, what kind of metric or objectives, KPIs? you know, that you look for in, in a young startup company? A young startup company is slightly different to mature company in how we value their the business value. Um, startup companies are usually loss-making uh, in the first few years uh, because they don't really make any revenues uh, in these early stages and they've been spending quite a lot in, in trying to build their teams 
in trying to uh, build the markets um, and in terms of uh, they need the money for buying equipments, for example. So we would look into few aspects when we value a startup, for example, especially in their very, very early stage of, uh, of, of the, uh, the business cycle. So we will more look into the future aspect of the, uh, of the startups where uh, we look into the products uh, of what they're selling, uh, their future um, aspect, whether it is a disruption technology or disruptive product that they they will be um, they will be selling, whether they will be changing the way of how the market works in the future, and also of course we have to look into management because uh, the management's uh, um, attitude is also equally important to um, to whether the startup will be successful or not. I was just about to ask you about management. I think for me, when I look into companies, you know, management is very important. The leadership, the characteristic traits of that leader will sort of project the direction of the company. So what do you look at um, of, of these leaders? Like, what, what are you looking at? What kind of personality traits sure. do you look at? Actually, talking about management, uh, there are a few uh, attitudes and a few aspects to make it uh, to make the management a good management for startups. Um, so I think firstly you have to be literally a fighter. Um, so being a management in a startup is very different to being a management in a mature company because every moment really counts in a, in in private equity and every day really counts. So with really a limited amount of money in the uh, in the bank account. Um, you're and also without much profit, the uh, companies are making. Uh, you're literally spending money every day, so you're burning money every day. So you have to make sure that all each penny really counts, and you have to be very sensitive in uh, what you're spending on. You have to be very hardworking in you know looking for clients. You have to make sure that your uh, R and D uh, research and development processes are on time. Um, and of course, uh, while you're also presenting to the clients, uh, potential uh, to uh, potential partners, for example, you also have to be very presentable. You have to be able to sell your own ideas. You know where you are trying to get to. Personality traits that you've mentioned. You know, really resonate. You know what kind what kind of leaders that I'm looking at. Um, do you have an example of of a good leader? So I think um, let's take uh, Elon Musk for example. I think he's a very good leader. A lot of people have been tracing him, and a lot of people actually know him as well. So um, ever since around 2005 or 2006, uh, when Elon Musk uh, started his idea of from you know uh, electric vehicle or SpaceX or um, or you know these kind of new batteries. No one actually believed in him. So, but at the same time, as time goes on, uh, with his perseverance and with his, uh, you know, fighter attitude as well, uh, while he also tried to persuade uh, different people, that made him uh, go on successful bit by bit. So right now, uh, for him being one of the richest guy in the world, uh, I think he just became like the second or the third richest guy by Forbes. It's not really something uh, that makes him go to that place within a day. So he has been building it uh, every day, uh, bit by bit, and uh, trying to persuade different people and, and also try to encounter all the difficulties that uh, he has been uh, going through. The fundamental 
point is that you have to have a never give up attitude uh, before you can actually get there and be able to present yourself to everyone and also be very hardworking. So Elon Musk is a very good example for that. Yeah. I, I totally agree. I think there's a lot of uh, companies out there that have great leaders. So besides management, for me as a retail investor, it's very hard for me to you know, invest in a company that hasn't been making a profit, right? So for startup companies, what kind of metrics, key indicators would be you know, something that we could reference. For example, if I use the PE ratio, which is the dollar amount an investor can expect to invest in a company in order to receive $1 of the company's earning, it would be very hard because the company hasn't made any profit yet. So you can't have that calculations, right? And if you look at PB, right, the price to book ratio, you know, which is essentially the price of the share divided by the book value, the book value as in the total assets um, minus all the accumulated depreciation of a company's assets. The startup company might not have a lot of assets and it doesn't really give you a, a really good insight into what the company's worth in two to three years. So is it really just about growth and customer acquisition? So it's a very good question, Kelvin. Um, actually, when private equity investors look into private companies, um, they do look into a different aspect and different, um, and they have a different methodology in how they see the company value. So PE is obviously not really something common for private equity investors to look into, uh, primarily because a lot of the companies are making losses. So there aren't really um, the earnings that they can refer to. Um, even if their earnings, they'll be they'll, they'll be very little and it'll really distort the ratios as compared to the uh, stable uh, public companies. So for PB, you're very right as well, uh, where they don't really have an asset. So it doesn't really make sense uh, that uh, you use their book value to compare to different uh, uh, public stocks because that, that will also really distort the entire valuation. So normally we will have um, two matrices to look into. So for some kind of, uh, for some companies where they are slightly more mature, we will look into their uh, price to sales ratio, where normally it is a more stable ratio when uh, you're encountering high growth. So for example, for, uh, for Tesla, it will be good if we look into the PS ratio because they are a high growth company right now. Uh, the electric vehicles have been, uh, getting more and more popular, so they have been expect, uh, experiencing a high boost. So this is the same for a lot of uh, private companies where they are experiencing a high growth and it will be a more stable ratio to use uh, to, to value on. And at the same time for uh, companies without any sales or even for, uh, for companies with uh, very little asset as well, it will be good to look into the, uh, the discounted cash flow. So discounted cash flow has two benefits. So firstly, you know um, the future, uh, you'll be valuing the future income and also future expenses as part of your uh, valuation considerations. And at the same time, you can also adjust it for uh, the different expenses or, or for example, if there are loss of debt. And also you can, you can also value it with your company's cost of capital as well, where the cost of capital would be a key metric for you to evaluate whether this is uh, this is a good investment for for your company 
in whether you think that you can make a good price increment in their valuation in the longer run. So DCF is also good because you can also value it with, with a very long run. It's usually good for uh, people who want to invest in a longer run, for example, five years or 10 years. While on the other hand, for example, for price to sales ratio, uh, you might be, it might be better if you're looking at investments where you're thinking to invest for one to five years, for example, uh, where you might be thinking they are going on listing after, after say two or three years because uh, they, their sales have been going on uh, quite a scale or they will be uh, earning an, uh, a profit after one or three years. So usually these will be two of the ratios and also the valuation techniques that uh, private equity use. Um, having said, for example, uh, people people are also talking about all the time leverage files and something like that, but they're very similar to uh, to discounted cash flow as well. So so normally it'll be just these two, price to sales and also uh, discounted cash flow. I think this is very insightful. You know, as a retail investor myself, I also like to use the discounted cash flow model to project how much cash flows that. Uh, the company will earn in the next couple of years and reinvest that capital to help grow the, the company even further. Um, so can you tell me more about how this discounted cash flow is sort of calculated? Because I think a lot of listeners don't know how to calculate it or don't know how to, you know, read it off from a company's balance sheet. From my understanding, um, you know, the discounted cash flow is essentially taking the, the cash flows off the balance sheet of the company uh, from previous years and then sort of project it to see what, what they're going to get in the coming years, taking into account inflation, um, the, the market risk. Um, but those, those, as you know, like when we do projections, these forecasts might not be accurate and we sort of don't know, you know, what kind of percentage we should benchmark to uh, evaluate the discount cash flow model. Sure. Um... This is a very good question uh, because sometimes even for public stocks, uh, for example, you'll be seeing a lot of research reports where these research analysts uh, would be actually valuing this company uh, with this kind of cash flow. So as layman explanation in how you should be viewing the cash flow is that usually this kind of cash flow involves some of the uh, company's future plans in how they want to grow their sales. Their, their company's plan in how they want to um, utilize their their cash in buying different uh, capex uh, capital expenditures, and also it involves some of the uh, management judgment in how much working capital requirement that they will need in uh, in the future. So, so discounted cash flow usually has three different parts. So. You look into the operating cash flow. It usually generates from the usual operating activities, where you earn the uh, revenue, and you also have the usual expenses that you have from the profit and loss statement. And at the same time, you also have to take into account of the capital expenditure, where whether you are going to spend more money into the uh, into different uh, equipments, or whether or not you'll be selling. A large part of your assets. So at the same time, at last, you'll be also looking into the working capital requirement, where normally you'll need to have a certain uh, portion of balance sheet where you would like to keep it as cash or something like that. So you will be trying to 
borrow money, for example, or you're trying to raise money, for example. So this also comes with the cost. And after that, if you have um, gathered all these information, so you need to understand what is the, uh, you, you have to discount it by the weighted average cost of capital, where it is a blend of your cost, uh, your capital cost of your debt and also your equity based on uh, each of the company's uh, usual costs, basically. Or it depends on whether uh, if you are an investor, you can also use your investor's uh, weighted average cost of capital to evaluate an investment because normally sometimes you will be, uh, you'll be borrowing money for investment as well, for example. So these cash also comes with cost, and it'll be good if you can evaluate with this so that you know whether an investment is worthwhile or not. That's a very good you know, definition of what the discounted cash flow model is and, and how to sort of calculate it. Let's, let's take a step further. So where do you see the economy heading six to 12 months? Do you see it, a potential economic bubble coming soon? In terms of what private equity investors are looking to the public market right now, um, they see two major problems right now. Uh, the first thing is, in terms of the stock market, people are starting to go for uh, market sentiment a lot more than actual value. So what we see is a very dangerous sign in, in people uh, participating in the stock market is that some people don't really understand the companies when they do their investments and then they start to ask for different numbers or different quotes for for the uh for, for the stocks so i often see people asking me hey what stocks should i be buying right now do you have a recommendation oh so it's one two three four five okay one two three five is good so i'll go and buy it right now and they, they don't really do their analysis and then after one or two purchases, they think that they're making money. And then everyone thinks that they are very good at investment. So this is a very dangerous sign where the economic growth is based on these uh, market sentiment and also you know, less of the fundamental analysis in, in what they're doing. And the second thing is in terms of different companies, uh, especially in China and also especially in, for example, China's uh, real estate market, we've been seeing a lot of companies use a lot of debts. And also we have been seeing a tighter cash flow in a lot of uh, companies. So with the COVID hitting uh, over the past year, um, actually we have been encountering quite a lot of opportunities uh, coming to, uh, to us. They all have a very common point. Whether or not it's a startup company or whether or not it's a mature company, they don't really have enough cash for the next six to 12 months. So this is a very dangerous sign where uh, you have a breakup in, in, the, uh, in the cash flow chain. And what happens when there is no cash in your company is that you go bankrupt. You cannot pay off your debt company, for example. So for a private company, I think it is slightly better because you can at most just bank up your own company and have your staff uh, being redundant because of that. But it is a bigger issue when it comes to a public company where you have already issued a lot of public bonds and you have been uh, um, borrowing a lot of money off the banks. This will create a huge snowball effect uh, in, the, in the whole economy. So for example, 
a very big real estate company cannot pay off their debt confidence in, the, in, in, in bonds. And then this will affect all of the investors and they'll be losing their, uh, their, their money. They'll be, they'll be not receiving their expected cash. And then what happens is that with their original businesses where they need the cash flow, they cannot pay off their, uh, their staff as well. They cannot pay off their, their payables. And then they, these companies will have a huge financial trouble as well. And then right after that, it will come off to the bank. The bank cannot collect all the debts and it will all become the bad debt. And this is all where there's no ball bubble will go. So out of the last year, uh, we do see a lot of huge risks, um, especially in some of the de uh, developing countries with less uh, monitoring and less regulations uh, from the financial institutions. We have been very cautious about how we invest as well. And we usually will look more into the ability of how the companies can pay off their debts before we make our decision. So would you say that this is a supply side risk where we're seeing inflationary due to the money supply affecting the, you know, the whole economy? Because I honestly don't see how we're not going to pump even more money um, to save the economy, right? So basically, it is both a supply risk and also demand risk. So the supply risk comes from um, you have no money. So in terms of in terms of perspective money, a lot of investors are going more cautious. Um, they have been reducing their outlook on their financial projections, for example. So when this happens, they will not invest in a lot of different companies so that you will be seeing less liquid cash flowing around in the economy. And when it comes with demand risk, it talks about in COVID where a lot of people are trapped at home and there is just less economic activities. So then the companies cannot actually realize their, uh, their potentials. For example, uh, when they have been expecting such a growth, but actually because of COVID, um, you cannot meet their demand. This is even worse uh, when it comes to traditional industries and traditional businesses where you rely more on the physical contacts of the customers before you can actually realize your, uh, your, your profits. But of course, this is slightly better when it comes to tech companies where you can do your business online, for example, and, and maybe there's some benefits uh, from the COVID uh, situation because everyone is staying home and then you have more interactions. But as private equity investors, we normally see this as a one-off effect because uh, the COVID will get off one day as well and the economy will go back to a normal stance. It is particularly more dangerous if one person sees a company growth based on what they see uh, as a huge growth in uh, based on the COVID situation. So, so for example, in 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 online marketplaces, uh, in online stores, for example, uh, selling healthcare products, um, if you experience a huge growth and if you uh, during the COVID situation, and if you use this growth to project and and think that the company can achieve this growth in the coming few years. This will be a very dangerous uh, judgment because this is a one-off effect, obviously, for COVID. Uh, but 
you have to take away this COVID effect in uh, in in evaluating companies in the future uh, when it comes to uh, these kind of uh, one-off effect. But obviously, there are general trends where this market will lead to. It's definitely a long trend rather than a short-term uh, hype like a like the COVID situation. Right? Yeah, I agree. I think a lot of tech companies have benefited from COVID, um, given that a lot of people are not are not going out spending as much as pre-COVID. So how does fundamental analysis justify the valuation of tech companies? So fundamental analysis is uh, on the tech companies is that you should look more into the, fun, uh, the financials aspect uh, rather than the commercial aspects of the tech companies. So for commercial aspects, uh, normally it is it just comes with the product and also the uh, the idea that uh, the the companies are selling. If you really believe in the ideas of these products and also services will make a good good trend in the future, then this is a good company. But in terms of financial and in terms of the ultimate fundamental analysis, uh, this comes with the ability to, for example, to realize their business value in how they make their profits and whether they really do have the increasing trend. They are able to make uh, different rounds of investments, uh, fundraising rounds, and then also have the sufficient cash. And uh, we also definitely look into the cash flow and, and whether their cash burn is enough to support their future operation for, for example, for the next one or two years. That makes a huge difference uh, for the tech companies in whether they can survive um, for some of these adverse market conditions. And at the same time, having enough resources for themselves to uh, realize their, their promises in how to grow their companies in the commercial aspect. So this is, uh, this is the fundamental analysis that we normally look into. So I'm really curious to know what kind of industries do you think has the most value for investors? Because I can actually, you know, resonate with a lot of retail investors. Like if they have a capital that they can dispose, what would be the safest asset class right now to invest? For private equity investors, uh, we have been seeing a larger trend to move from asset heavy companies to slightly asset-like companies. This is because um, in an asset-heavy company, you will need a huge capital uh, requirement in, in making your capex. But there are huger risk these days that these capital expenditures cannot really convert into uh, revenue right now. But obviously, it differs from uh, uh, different venture capital firms and private equity firms because they do have their um, different mandates. But in general, uh, we have been seeing trends of giving more merits to uh, asset lighter companies because they can uh, they can use less capital in turning the investment into potential uh, investments. So when you talk about uh, what are the industries that have a you know a better future, for example, uh, we'll be seeing stuff like tech companies without large uh, uh, capital expenditure so so maybe it's on software side on the um, on the ai side on the cloud side and also the uh 
the general trend as well in, in terms of what the economy is looking for. For example, uh, healthcare. People are more aware of health uh, going forward. I think it's also EV, right? I think EV sector has benefited so much. I think there's also a lot of hype. I think a lot of retail investors, even the institutional investors, um, really believe in this industry. In the next six to seven years, you know, it's very likely that all our vehicles will be powered electric. So for me, as as a retail investor and someone that really pays attention to fundamentals, it's also hard for me to invest in these sort of companies, right? You have Tesla, uh, Neo, going up at a rate that is incredibly high. It's very difficult for for me to want to invest in it right now. But it's also contradicting the fact that I see it becoming a, a giant company in the next six to seven years as we shift to electric vehicles. This is a, uh, the difference between what private equities investors and also what public stock investors look into. So private equity investors are more willing to wait for opportunities to come. Um, within the industry, for example, uh, when you see there are trends for electric vehicles, for example, the people are willing to look into the entire market where what are the market participants within the um, the entire market for some of the electric vehicles, and they will be seeing and they'll be choosing these uh, better electric vehicles companies with a cheaper rate, for example, as compared to the overvalued companies, for example. But having said, there is no really huge judgment on whether uh, it, is an, it is an overvalued company or an undervalued company. So in terms of the angle for private investors, when there is a market for someone to buy it, when there are actually purchases and sales in a company, value has been already taken up by the investors. But in terms of private equities, when we choose what is the good company, for example, in terms of what you say about electric vehicles, Tesla is relatively overvalued as compared to, uh, say, for example, um, Lee Auto. Lee Auto is also one of the three uh, listed electric vehicle manufacturers. In terms of the price-sales ratio, you have been seeing Tesla it has been sky-high, P ratio especially as well. But if you look into, for example, Lee Auto, it, it is one of the uh, three largest uh, electric vehicle uh, manufacturer. Its ratios have been uh, a lot lower than Neo and also Xiaopeng, so uh, the three electric vehicle manufacturers. So if I have to choose, for example, I'll be choosing one of the lower, but obviously they have been experiencing a high growth as well. Their, their general growth is, uh, is generally the same, but for some of the Auto, their uh, profitability is also equally better than Neo and also uh, Xiaopeng because it's, uh, its gross margin is a lot higher as well as compared to them. For us, we'll be evaluating and we'll be seeing that they have been utilizing their cash flow more efficiently in terms of how they convert it into, uh, into potential revenues. So this is how we see electric vehicle uh, industry and how we choose uh, what to invest and what to not invest uh, based on uh, what we see is the um, is the potential gap in the market? So the gap is very important uh, that uh, when we evaluate uh, the investment. I really appreciate your insight into this industry. I think it's it's very interesting how the this industry will continue to grow in the next couple of years. So let me s sort of change the question a bit 
Can, I'm curious to know, you know, as a retail investor or, you know, from an institutional perspective, what is the biggest learning in the stock market? The biggest learning in the stock market is that 80% of the people will actually lose money while around only 20% will actually earn. So if you want to be the actual 20%, you cannot follow what the general trend is doing. So you have to really believe in yourself, in what you're investing in and what are the um, investment thesis that you have. Uh, for example, if you think that this industry has a future, then you have to really believe in your in your thoughts. And the second thing is you have to stay focused. So, be, so you have to really uh, stay in one direction that you have been going for for a long time before you can be successful. It is a long run for a stock market. It's usually not a... So usually for short-term investments, you'll be seeing market volatility, but for a longer run, the trend will be there. So as long as you have been choosing for some of the right direction, right industry as well. And uh, having said also uh, for, for myself, um, I will prefer usually investing in you know, general uh, stocks rather than looking into the, uh, the financial products like options or futures or warrants. Because usually for options and futures and warrants and these um, the surrounding financial products, they're more for institutional investors in hedging risk rather than for retail investors in putting all your eggs into the same basket. So if you invest most of your money into these financial products, you'd be also expecting that you might have a total loss because, uh, uh, because of these uh, features in the products. Uh, for example, in warrants, uh, you do have a time value of money inside warrants where effectively after, um, after when this warrant is going to expire, um, these value will go to zero. So you'll be losing a lot of money and you'll be giving out a lot of money in, in these. And having said, I, we don't really recommend margin financing. This is only very good uh, for sure win situations. Uh, for example, uh, for, for I-bonds, for example, um, where you know that uh, with, the, with the current interest rate environment and the, and the coupon rate that the uh, I-bond will be giving out, you know that you'll be having a price increment within two days of, uh, of the issuance. So this will be good for margin financing. Or otherwise, uh, the margin financing will be just leveraging your own portfolio and you might be experiencing market volatilities. And then while you're also paying out the interest, this will create a huge uh, financial pressure for yourself as well. And so normally my biggest learning in this stock investment is, uh, is you have to believe in yourself. And it is better not to leverage your your total portfolio unless you're very sure of your going to win with either margin financing or with financial products. Very interesting. I don't think a lot of listeners understand the risks of options, futures, warrants. Um, so can you tell me more about like the associated risks with options, uh, futures, as well as margin financing? Sure. For example, for options, um, you have call options and you have put options. For call options, um, your price will uh, drastically go up, will be leveraged when the uh, underlying asset goes up in value. 
and for put option, the, the direction goes opposite. So if the underlying asset is appreciating, your option value will decrease. But at the same time, if your asset is going down uh, in value, your option price will go up. But this is, uh, because this is very leveraged, for example, you have a uh, five times leverage ratio. So when the underlying asset increases by 1% in value, your option also increases by 5% in a call option uh, uh, situation, or it'll decrease by 5% in put option uh, situation. But in reality, the, the actual option will not operate in this way because you also have the time value of money. So effectively, you only have, for example, a 4% increase in, in value when you have a 1% increase in the, in the underlying asset for its call option uh, situation. And at the same time, you'll be losing even more in the put option, for example, 6%. So, so ultimately, uh, you'll be also paying off this money in, uh, into, the, uh, into the stock option rider. Um, so this is uh, something very risky to do as well. And having said, no one can really predict uh, what the uh, stock price will be going up or down. Set aside uh, for future, um, this is even more, um, more volatile because um, when you write a future or when you buy a future, you don't really pay up anything at first, but when the time period has expired, you will be having to realize the entire um, portion of the future as well. So. If the, if the underlying asset uh, value has been going up or going down a lot, then your actual payout might be a lot more as well. So, so this is an equivalent like a gamble uh, between two parties, and, and it might create a total loss for your entire portfolio. And in terms of margin financing, usually the margin financing uh, interest is very high. Uh, you'll be effectively paying around say for example, seven to 8% per annum in interest. So for example, if you are making a, a long position in, in stocks, so that means you're buying stocks instead of your short selling stocks. If you're buying stocks, you have to make sure that your stock needs to earn 8% per annum before you can actually pay off your interest. So what happens if, if the stock goes down by 1%? So not just that you need to pay your interest, but since your portfolio is also leveraged, your actual loss is way more than 1%. For example, if you're leveraged by uh, uh, 10 times of your original portfolio, you'll be losing like 10% of your entire original money if the stock goes down by 1%. So this is something very volatile to do so as well, because um, if there is one big news that is very negative for the company, effectively you might be losing your entire portfolio within one day. For example, if you have a um, if you have a short seller uh, issuing an average report saying that there are uh, frauds in this company, well, regardless of not whether this company has this or not, so you'll be facing this kind of risk on yourself. So, uh, whereas if you just use your own money in investing without leveraging or without using a financial product, you at most uh, only need to lose a certain portion while you can keep your own uh, own original uh, money so that you can turn around with a better investment in the future. I, I can really resonate with the risk um, because I, I actually don't ever do options or futures or, or warrants because I sometimes feel like I'm trying to time the markets. 
you know, in the future and try to predict what the, the price is. So I think a lot of retail investors or people in general would like to sort of answer this question. Like, how do you differentiate stock investing versus gambling? Stock investing is when you know what you want to invest based on an investment thesis. And also when you have already done a thorough analysis into the company. So you know that, um, you know that this company will do good uh, in the future uh, because of, for example, they have very stable product. They have this very strong balance sheet. And for example, the management is good after a thorough analysis. For gambling, it is really on, for example, for market sentiment. Uh, you are thinking that, for example, there will be policy supports in the future that might come out in a few days later, which you don't really know whether they will come out. Uh, you base your stock investing by speculations. Uh, for example, uh, the, um, the profits will go very well after a few days. Um, for example, you are just asking your friends off for stock numbers. So these are more on gambling. So normally, as a professional investor, we will not really look into gambling because this is very dangerous to your portfolio. And most likely, uh, you'll be part of 80% where you losing the money in the stock market investment as well. You know, a lot of people ask me that question as well. And the way that I, I phrase stock investing is whether you're willing to own a piece of that company. So what's most important is that you understand what the business objectives are for this company as well as how the the company is doing from a financial aspect so looking into the balance sheet i'm sure you're very accustomed to looking into the balance sheets income statements of all the companies that you you want to invest that's my um, answer to that question as opposed to gambling i mean when you're gambling it's almost like you're not doing your research you're basing off your decisions at the moment in time based on how you feel and and how the market is sort of responding to you know news and speculations so it's it's very interesting that your definition is is definitely a more informed way of looking into companies and and investing and i'm sure a lot of our you know listeners would be able to sort of benefit this i really agree as well uh because when you buy a stock you have to be thinking whether you will be willing to own this piece of uh, um, investment in the long run as well because sometimes uh, for companies that you invest in, they might be paying off dividends. So you may be getting your, uh, you may be getting your appreciation value uh, based on that, or just simply by the stock value appreciation in the future. So uh, because of uh, their future products, for example. So this is also a difference between the gambling. You also need to ask yourself, what happens if the stock doesn't go well? Will I be Will I be willing to hold this stock for another 10 years or so? And if the answer is yes, I think it'll be a good investment for yourself as well. Yeah, I think it's it's very easy to, you know, get caught up with the emotional factors. I think the stock market itself is very emotional. And being immune to that emotional factor is also a skill. Um, so this session has been so uh, insightful. And Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for your time, for coming to this podcast, you know, it's been a pleasure. You know, I hope that our listeners will gain a little bit more confidence in investing and hopefully they're more informed to make 
um, decisions based off you know accounting principles. Um, so thank you for your time. Thank you. Thanks, Calvin. One last question: Do you own any stocks that we've mentioned in this podcast? To make a disclaimer to the stocks mentioned in the podcast just now, that I currently own a small portion of Neo stocks. Apart from this, I confirm that I do not own any other stocks mentioned in the podcast. The views and opinions expressed here do not necessarily reflect the official position of the speakers in this podcast. Any content provided by guest speakers are of their opinion and are not intended to represent or malign any institutions, religion, or group. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only, and we are not your financial advisors. If you like this podcast, please follow us at our Instagram page at mmarketgoliath for new updates to our next episode.